Welcome to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Henry Thompson, a professor in the School of Politics and Global Studies at Arizona State University. This is an interview show in which I talk to scholars, writers, intellectuals and thought leaders about civil discourse, the American political tradition and intellectual life more broadly. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to Keeping It Civil. On this episode, I talk to Dr. Jason Nichols, who is a senior lecturer in the African American Studies Department at the University of Maryland. We talk about his work as a hip-hop artist and as a scholar, and about his current life as a public intellectual. We also talk about the corrosive effect of social media on civil discourse and how he tries to push back by having constructive conversations across the political ideological divide. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Let's get into this. Thank you very much, Jason, for joining the podcast. I am really excited to talk to you about your career as an academic, as a hip-hop artist, as a public intellectual. So why don't we start from the beginning, if you don't mind? I read in one of your books that you said you grew up in suburban Maryland and became a uh, hip-hop artist before you became an academic. And I'm just so fascinated in, in that whole transition and part of your biography. How did you go from being a hip-hop artist to getting a PhD and becoming a uh, university instructor? So I, I don't really think it was a transition. I think that both things kind of nurtured one another. You know, um, I got interested in hip-hop, you know, really young. My family is originally from New York City, from Spanish Harlem. This was like the 1980s and hip-hop was just exploding. And I have an older sister who's about six years older than I am. So she would go to the park jams and all of that. She had to drag me along a lot of times. That's how I really fell in love with hip hop. And at the same time, when I started, you know, kind of coming of age around, you know, 11, 12 years old, I was listening to rap music. And this was during a period where you had really Afrocentric rap music. So it was like, you would hear speeches by Malcolm X or by Dr. King and in the songs. You would hear references to people like, you know, Chesimard and all that. And I would go to my dad and be like, who are these people? And, you know, him being of that kind of Black power generation, he would give me the books. And so, you know, I feel like my hip hop kind of influenced my politics, which influenced my reading that made me interested in the field that I study now, you know, and, and that I work in African-American studies. So in Black studies, the fact that I'm originally from Spanish Harlem, you know, I'm interested in, you know, Latinidad at, at the same time, you know, because that was, those are the people I grew up around. It is a little distinctive, Jason, that you were not only a passionate consumer of hip-hop, but that you yourself became a quite successful hip-hop artist. So I'd be really interested in learning a little bit more about that. Man, it was, it was such a fun process. One of the things that I think hopefully you guys will get a taste of is that I love an audience. And this is why one of the reasons I love teaching and getting their feedback. You know, being an artist and being a hip-hop artist is the ultimate way of sharing your thoughts and getting feedback. You know, it's an almost an addicting kind of feeling. So I started rapping with some friends of mine and we were just kind of doing it in our basements and our garages. You know, in college, it got a little more serious. And then there was a point where, you know, I thought maybe this was going to be my career. So I was 
signed to some relatively mid-major labels, put some music out. Obviously, it didn't take off because I'm here and I'm not on a jet with Drake right now. <laughs> it still was a fun ride and a fun process. But during that whole time, I was still studying. I was still in school. I was still teaching and, and reading and learning. And you were able to successfully divide your time between these two things. Were you, were you in the African-American Studies Department at Maryland at this time that you were rapping, or were you doing a different major or course of study? So I started out as a business major, and then I took accounting. And uh, you know, it wasn't even that I, I didn't do well in the class. It's that I was like, I literally had you know, what people call that come to Jesus moment where I was like, can I see myself doing this for the rest of my life? Shout out to all the accountants out there. You're doing the Lord's work because that's not something I just could do. I was interested in African-American studies. So I made that transition. It was something where going to class was a pleasure. It was something I enjoyed doing. Doing the reading was something that I would have done in my spare time anyway. And the class discussions were always engaging. Didn't matter if the if the teacher was a good teacher or a bad one. Like it was always something that interested me. And you did end up writing your dissertation on hip hop, uh, right? I'd be interested to learn a little bit more about what you wrote about and where the field of hip hop studies was at that time. Whether it was sort of nascent, with quite small, or whether it was already kind of starting to become a big deal within African American studies and cultural studies, or what was it like writing a dissertation about that topic at that particular time? I felt like hip-hop studies was booming at the time. It's really slowed down in a lot of ways. I think people were really interested in the so what of hip-hop. What does this mean for our societies? Hip-hop was really becoming global at the time. What are the ties that bind rappers in West Baltimore to rappers in Palestinian territory? And with my dissertation, I looked at an area of hip hop that generally wasn't really my area, uh, which was really hip hop related dance, song dance combinations, trying to develop kind of a language of hip hop dance and seeing what the movements actually were saying. What are they saying with their bodies when they do it? Particularly, what is the masculine message? Because this was a time when men were dancing. Early on, you know, in hip hop, you know, you had people like Big Daddy Kane and others, and they were dancers and they had background dancers. And then you got this kind of gangster movement in hip hop where it became uncool to dance. But then around the mid 2000s, this kind of song dance combination became really popular. So you got songs like The Dougie or you got Soldier Boy. And so it became really interesting to me, like, what are they actually saying? Like, what, what is it that these movements are supposed to be depicting about their masculinity? So I tried to develop a basically a language of hip hop movement in my dissertation. And I, you know, I, I worked pretty closely with specialists in, you know, Laban movement analysis. It was really fun watching these performances and analyzing the lyrics and also trying to analyze the body movements as well. I'm really interested in this idea that hip hop as a field of study is kind of stagnating because you were at the forefront of this and even founded the first peer-reviewed scholarly journal in the field. How did you do that? How did you found this 
this journal, it seems like quite a remarkable thing for such a young scholar to do. There were a few of us. We decided that, you know, we wanted to have like an outlet for hip hop scholarship. If you're a hip hop philosopher, a lot of times people in the field of philosophy may not take you seriously because the the field, to be honest, was old and white. So we wanted to have a space for all of this generation of hip hop scholarship and for it to be global. Like it was through a, a nonprofit organization called Words, Beats and Life. You know, they were traveling around the the world and I traveled with them a few times in Brazil and met a bunch of B-boys and graffiti writers in Brazil and rappers. I went to Saudi Arabia and saw the hip hop in Saudi Arabia, which was mind blowing. Looking at the global scope of hip hop, but one of the, you know, elements of hip hop is knowledge. And we wanted to have a space for that element, but we also wanted the very best scholarship. And the way to do that was to have other scholars review it. And there were lots of young scholars in the academy, you know, people who were assistant professor here or maybe associate professor there or lecturer here who kind of had their foot in the door and knew how the system worked. And, And we reached out to them and tried to get them to peer review. So we got some really, you know, cool people, really smart scholars some of the early scholarship on hip hop, like Murray Foreman and Jeff Chang, and they were all willing to peer review. I think we came out with a really good product. And I think, you know, the journal is still going on. They're still putting out good stuff. I don't have time to be directly involved. I do think, though, just the excitement about the field has kind of subsided. That would be something for scholars to talk about. But I think the academy at a certain point kind of bucked back on the trend in a way. They were like, I had a lot of my mentors tell me, all right, you need to get out of hip hop scholarship. Hmm, Why? Well, I think some of it is just the same thing that people said about hip hop early on when the early rappers were rapping and the early B-boys were breaking and the early DJs were DJing. They said, this is a trend. This is a fad. Is hip hop regarded as not as important to study as other aspects of African-American culture like jazz, for example? I think so. I, you know, I think there's always, you know, kind of a, even within African-American circles or Latino circles, there's that high culture, low culture debate. I think hip hop is regarded lower than some other fields in popular culture. But when we're talking about popular culture, like I said, the issue being the so what, like, what is it saying about our society? How is it influencing our society? I think it's so important to look at hip hop, you know what I mean? Because it says so much about our youth. It's saying so much about race, about class, about gender. And if you want to look at trends, I mean, going back to the early 90s, people were so shocked. White America was so shocked when Los Angeles exploded. I remember, you know, April 29th, 1992, I think, when you had the L.A. Rebellion after the Rodney King verdict. And there were so many people in the news media who were so shocked. How did this happen? Oh my God. But we know if you were listening to hip hop, basically all those West Coast rappers were saying, this city's gonna explode. Ice Cube said it, Tupac said it. Everybody's like, this is gonna be a real problem. And nobody listened. Yeah, it's very interesting that you would say that art is a leading indicator of politics. 
or culture is a leading indicator of politics. I think that's um, I think that's really interesting, and kind of very much speaks to your role as a as a public intellectual, right? You the, these days it seems like you're very active in the public sphere on TV uh, as an op-ed columnist, all sorts of other other fora where you're really getting in the mix with these public debates. I wanted to ask you, do you consider yourself a media entrepreneur? Because when I was looking at your biography and all the things that you've done, I mean, you've you've got at least one podcast, you've had at least another, you run a website or you have in the past like a news website. Obviously, you founded this academic journal, you write opinion pieces all the time. Do you see yourself as a as an entrepreneur? You know, it's interesting when you say entrepreneur, the first thing I think is money. So if money's <laughs> the issue, then no. <laughs> you know? Okay, uh, okay. Do I consider myself a part of the conversation and, and trying to represent points of view that maybe you're not going to hear if I don't say it or a few others don't say it? Then, then yes, I, I definitely do think that. Tell me about your politics then. You know, you, you seem very passionate about expanding debate. What sort of a position do you see yourself presenting in, in public discourse and public debates? I never like the kind of paradigm that we've set up, you know, left and right. I think it's what is bold to make bold change and yet what is reasonable. I think when you take those two things into account, that's what I where my politics, like, you know, I, I think they lie. Now, you know, if someone were to listen to me, they'd probably say that I'm further to the left. You know, I, I was a Bernie Sanders supporter. You know, I, I believe in a lot of those ideas, but I'm also a believer in open discussion and open debate. And we can, you know, and I believe in my position so strongly that I'm willing to debate just about anybody. Not anybody, but just about anybody. Yeah, which is something that I want to talk about with you a little bit more because I think that's so interesting. But to come back to your own political ideology, if you want to call it, I mean, I think it's really great that you don't want to allow yourself to be pigeonholed. But, you know, you mentioned some youthful influences like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X coming from the hip hop scene. Are there any other real sort of guiding influences on your thought that maybe from university or people from the present day that really have influenced your thinking or maybe are even influencing your thinking as we speak and causing you to change your views about some areas? Oh, man. Uh, whew, there's a lot. <laughs> uh, you know. Okay, sorry. Maybe just one or two. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to narrow it down. So, so number one, you know, I, I would, I'm a Maryland guy. I would say one person that influences my thoughts about politics isn't a politician. And it was a woman from Baltimore named B. Gaddy. B. Gaddy is, you know, a legendary figure in Baltimore, you know, not much known nationally. She was a single mother of five by the time she was 20 or 25. Maybe. She was from North Carolina and had left an abusive relationship, moved to Baltimore, was on welfare with her five children, living impoverished in Baltimore City. I think there are parts of Baltimore and people living in Baltimore that if I were to take some of you from Arizona around, and again, maybe, maybe I have a, a skewed view of Arizona. I'm, I'm thinking like desert and golf. Uh, <laughs> there is and, quite and a bit retirement. of that out here, yeah. <laughs> if I were to take you to places in Baltimore, you'd be surprised that that kind of poverty exists in a, in a major urban city in America. 
you know, with that, that should give you an idea of what she was kind of living under with five kids by herself on welfare. But one day she actually won a lottery ticket. She won like a scratch off lottery and for $250. Now at the time, $250 was a lot more than it is right now. $250 to that in that community was a lot of money. She easily could have bought her five kids something, you know, gifts or what have you. Instead, she bought a bunch of groceries and fed the neighborhood. She made a bunch of food and she started handing it out to people in the neighborhood who were hungry. That grew to a point where she would go, she had a shopping cart, almost looked like a bag lady, but she had a shopping cart. She would go around the city walking on foot and gathering up, you know, going to churches and different places and made her own food pantry in her house for her community. And eventually she got a couple of people to help her out. And she started taking like uh, furniture and giving furniture to people who had no furniture in their homes, you know, old furniture and what have you. And later it grew into a big nonprofit in Baltimore. Just that idea of taking care of your community and sometimes thinking it's not me, it's us. Like that sounds like charity, but to me, that's politics. That's kind of what I believe in. Doesn't mean that, you know, you can't do good things. And I'm sure she drew us at, you know, once her nonprofit started to grow and get grants and she started to be well-known. And in Baltimore, like I said, she was a legendary figure. She came to my house when I was a kid to pick up some things. We had like a barbecue. And she came to, you know, we said we were going to donate. So she came and picked it up. And I mean, you would have thought the president came. Like, we were so excited. Like, you know, oh, my God, B. Gaddy's here. You know, in terms of the academy, I had some of the best mentorship. One person I'll mention is uh, Ronald Walters, who actually was Jesse Jackson's campaign manager in 1984. And he was one of my mentors here at the University of Maryland before he passed. So he was somebody who, who informed my politics. He was also involved in one of the first sit-ins in, when he was in college in, in Tennessee. I had all of these incredible Black women scholars. You know, when I came in as an 18-year-old, I'm sure if you had told me that I was a homophobe, I would have said no. Or if you had told me that I was sexist, I would have said, no, I love women. What are you talking about? I, I know gay people. I have gay friends. I'm not, you know, I have gay cousins. I'm not, I'm not a homophobe. But these Black women scholars embraced me and taught me that I had a lot to learn. And I had to, a lot to learn about my own privileges. And that, that was, you know, really mind-blowing. This is why I think it's important to have patience with people. This is why social media is so corrosive because when we don't like somebody, we body slam them and then we try to bury them. And I'm like, yes, there are some people who probably need to get body slammed, but sometimes we need to body slam you and then pick you up, dust you off and ask you if you've learned your lesson. And if you've learned your lesson, we invite you back in. So it all comes down to whether you are open-minded enough that your mind could be changed. I think that's one of the real dangers of where our society is headed right now, is the fact that people are so siloed. Like, you know, we talk about some of these, you know, the podcasts that I've developed. I keep trying to do a left-right podcast, quote unquote. People don't want that. People don't want to hear the other side. 
And you mentioned social media is contributing to that. Do you think that the the format of social media, the the brevity of these statements that people are allowed to make sort of pushes people into making really sort of stark declaratory statements in terms of their own views and in terms of condemning or supporting others or is it this kind of mob mentality that people just kind of pile on by their thousands or what is going on on social media that that leads to this kind of dynamic i think that you know there's so many dangerous things about social media number one the fact that it is an outlet for your every emotion you see something that upsets you you immediately have something where you have an audience you know not all of your thoughts need to be shared it's different to reading the newspaper at your kitchen table when maybe your family have to listen to your outburst on social media everyone can can see it potentially i, I think that's that's a that's a big problem i know m- me personally i have to catch myself when I feel like I'm emotionally tweeting. I've done it before. I actually went viral and got heavily attacked. And what one rule that I have is I'm against ad hominem. I don't use ad hominem. But I broke this rule because I was so frustrated. I watched, I think it was Tim Scott was giving a response. And he said, America is not a racist country. I think I tweeted something to the effect of Tim Scott is a clown and his ancestors are ashamed of him. Now, that's not to say I don't feel that way. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I'm not apologizing for what I actually, you know, for the emotion behind it, but it, it, it went against my own rules, you know, for myself. You regret tweeting it, even if you don't regret having that thought internally. Right, exactly. And yet you do seek out conversations with people you disagree with. This is what I find kind of interesting is that you think social media is corrosive and you find but it's not that it's because you're confronted with ideas you don't agree with. It's uh, you do that all the time, right? You had this podcast where you speak to a conservative, you appear on Tucker Carlson's show, I think it's pretty clear that you disagree with him on most issues. Are those sorts of venues places where you can have a real conversation outside of the kind of hostile back and forth of social media? Do you think those conversations are better? There is a way that you will behave and talk to people face to face that go out the window when you're a faceless figure online. Like when I'm on Tucker Carlson or, or wherever, that's a, a discussion that I chose to get into, you know, consciously. But I think there's like social media kind of encourages you to get into every argument, every discussion, have an opinion on every single thing. You go to sleep looking at your phone. You wake up looking at your phone. Anytime you're, it almost becomes a reflex. Let me open up Facebook. Let me open up Twitter. Um, I had to take Twitter like off of you know, off of my phone. Yeah, I've heard many people say that, actually, that they, that they find it so distracting. But about the um, these discussions that you seek out in other venues, you know, writing op-eds, going on TV interviews, leading your podcast with, you know, people from across the other side of the political spectrum, do you think that you're one of a shrinking number of people that's willing to have these kind of conversations with people that they disagree with, you know, maybe even quite contentious conversations? Definitely. I can count the number of people who do what I do on one hand. 
who are willing to go into certain venues, you know, have those discussions and have those debates. Number one, you know, I, and I understand why I'm not, I'm not necessarily knocking those people for not wanting to do it. Because when I go on Tucker, I get, you know, death threats. I've had people say they want to find where my kids go to school. So I, I, I get why people may not want to subject themselves to that. I don't want to sound like I'm criticizing those people, but I, I do think there are times and venues where we can have civil debate on a topic that is worth discussing. There are a lot of people who, who will avoid that. And the other thing is, and I don't know that this is 100% the case, now that I've done so much of that, going into conservative media, being willing to debate with conservative people, the liberal people don't call me anymore. You know what I mean? They're like, he's a conservative person or he or he's a secret. I don't know what they think. But so, although, so although you hold policy preferences, ideological commitments that are broadly of the left, the fact that you're engaging in these types of conversations with people who disagree almost marks you as a conservative? Uh, I don't know that they think I'm a conservative. I'm not sure what the opinion is. It may just be that they don't think I'm a compelling guest. That that's could be it. I don't know. The topic of your talk or the discussion when you come out here to ASU is going to be about threats to democracy. Do you think that the behavior on social media and to a certain extent the polarization of the media landscape, perhaps even your own experience of so few people being willing to talk to the other side of the aisle, do you think it has broader implications for American democracy or is this kind of combative polarized environment where people can kind of pick which side of the debate they want to listen to. Is that totally fine? I'd just be interested in hearing what your thoughts are on that. This polarization is heading us in a really dangerous direction. And when you couple it with where we are as a society right now, and the fact that there are, I think, entities out there that benefit from getting us angry at each other. I think a lot of that is on the right. I'm going to be honest. The right used to just be Fox News, but now there's all these other kind of venues that have popped up. They want to cater to, you know, the farther right that they can go. They don't think Fox goes far enough and they don't think Newsmax goes far enough. So they want to go even farther. You know, how do they grab that audience by making them think that the left wants to destroy them and destroy their children, all these kinds of things. And I think if we don't have the discussion, and if we don't go into some of these settings, you know, reasonable right wing settings, you know, as a left wing person going into those settings and being willing to have those discussions, we open the door for those, a lot of those ideas to go unchallenged. And when they go unchallenged, they fester into something else. And then you get a QAnon. So you think that having this, you know, basically having opposing points can kind of moderate the conversation on both sides if people were willing to invite those sorts of opposing views on. Absolutely. And there should be some balance. But because of what social media has created in our society, like I've had people get angry at hosts on conservative media because they're like, why did you let him talk? Literally, that's been like a big complaint. Why did you let him talk? He's spreading a bunch of 
democratic talking points? Why did you let him talk? Instead of why didn't you debate him better? Or why didn't you guys discuss this? Or maybe he was wrong here. It's trying to actually limit the discussion. You know, one of my mentors in media is a woman named Greta Van Susteren, and she has her own show. And I constantly see her going back and forth on Twitter with people who are upset that she lets viewers decide. You know what I mean? That she literally, she's about as old school a journalist as you get. She brings both sides of issues on. She asks them open-ended questions and she lets you state your view. And the viewers decide whether they agree or disagree. People argue with her all the time that you know she doesn't do monologues and she doesn't attack the left enough and she doesn't do this or that. And I think that's really sad that people don't even want journalists to give them the choice to decide. The most successful show on cable news is The Five. They have a liberal voice on there, sort of. You know, somehow Geraldo Rivera becomes a left-wing person or Harold Ford becomes a left-wing person who Harold Ford is probably the farthest right-wing Democrat that you can find. It's four people ganging up on this one person. So people are actually like watching to see this one person get beat down, you know, with a bunch of people screaming at him. And it's really sad that we can't just have moderated civil debate and let the best ideas win. Maybe on that note, Jason, we should end the podcast. I think that's a great that's a great way to end uh, the discussion. Jason, we have one last question that we always conclude our podcast with. The question is, do you have a book or a podcast or a piece of music or a film or anything really that you would recommend to our listeners that are interested in the topic of civil discourse and debate? Well, my old podcast just ended and, you know, we're, I'm working on something, you know, creating something new. But right now I would say, go back to some of the old uh, episodes of Vince and Jason Save the Nation, um, where we, we interviewed, you know, a bunch of really important people and a bunch of decision makers. And, We interviewed them from both sides. You know, you had a left-wing person and a right-wing person. Well, that sounds absolutely perfect. Thank you very much. No problem. Anytime.